Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifesting Podcast. Just a quick rundown of what we'll be talking about this week. In the headline segment, we're going to cover two stories. The first of which is going to be a bit of a continuation from what we talked about last week. Now, if you listen to the last show, you know I discussed Syria, the events that are going on over there, and really kind of focused in on the Western media's response to those events. I went in pretty hard on Scahill and Greenwald and the whole crew at the Intercept for conveniently putting out these anti-Assad stories as the U.S. was deciding whether or not to go into Syria and, uh, and intervene. So I thought that was, was pretty disgusting, and I said as much. We're going to talk a little bit more about The Intercept, because during this last week, they really doubled down on their bullshit, to be quite honest with you. We even had Mehdi Hassan, who works for The Intercept now, coming out with this really, really ridiculous story with this laughable headline about how anybody who's anti-intervention is just like an Assad fan. It's just, we're going to talk really about the apparent inability for people at The Intercept to engage honestly with criticism, which you know, as you know, is a huge fucking flaw for a a supposed leftist source. So we'll talk about that. And we'll also discuss democracy now of all sources, kind of towing the same line as it comes to Syria, having on these pro-intervention guests and even people who have fought side by side with the rebels, which as we discussed last week, these rebels are funded by the US and they're members of Al Qaeda and ISIS. So it's a big bag of bullshit right now coming out of those media sources. And we will discuss that at length. In the second story for headlines, we're going to be doing something just a bit different this week. Now, I'm sure you all saw that Barbara Bush has passed away, and we've had, kind of predictably, we've had white, bougie, quote-unquote, feminists falling all over themselves, talking about what a powerful and inspirational lady Barbara Bush was, which is ridiculous. So it's something I wanted to talk about, but, um, you know, I, I thought it would be a lot more effective to actually have, you know, a woman come on the show and talk about some of these issues as it pertains to really bougie white feminism and this outpouring of support that we've seen for Barbara Bush. So we're going to be doing something a little bit new. A uh, friend of the show, Lauren, will be coming on to do a little Laurent about this whole topic. So hopefully that's something you enjoy. My only real reservation about having a, a guest on the show previously is that I would so clearly be upstaged on my own podcast, which isn't saying much, and it'd just be devastating to my ego. But I, I thought it was high time that there was another voice on the show besides mine. So again, hopefully it's something that you all enjoy. In the second segment, of course, we're going to be continuing our talk about the Russian Revolution. Now, it is Lenin's fucking birthday of all days. I did not plan this out, but it's just beautiful timing. How serendipitous. So we'll be discussing the Russian Revolution, really talking about Lenin, where he started from, how he was radicalized, etc. Um, and yeah, this is, um, you know, I was really thinking about it this, this, this last week, and I think this is going to be something that stretches on for several shows. I've been reading through a lot of sources. There's so much to cover, and I'm not saying I'm going to be doing like a Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, where these are like five-hour episodes about certain topics, but this is going to be a pretty long one. There's just so much to cover, so this will be part two of that talk. Hopefully you enjoy that as well. Now, if you want to reach me, if you have questions for me, comments, concerns, death threats, you can find me on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash manifestpod. You can find me on Facebook. I have the Manifesting Podcast page up at this point. You can also find me on Instagram. If you want to listen to the show, like I said last week, I am on most podcast platforms at this point, whether that be like Apple, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, etc. Wherever you listen to your podcast, you should be able to find me at this point. And if you want to support the show, which is always greatly appreciated, you can do so at patreon.com slash manifestpod. All right, so jumping into headlines, like I said at the top of the show, 
I want to continue this discussion, at least for a little while, about the Western media's response to the events that have taken place in Syria. We're going to focus in yet again on The Intercept. It's not that I'm trying to single them out, but their response this last week has been nothing short of childish, to be quite honest with you. If you didn't listen to last week's show, I'll just give kind of a brief recap of what I discussed. Now, I'm sure you've heard about the events in Syria, how there was a, a chemical attack, and it's even come out this last week that there may have not even been a chemical attack at all. That's a whole other story we'll discuss at some point. But, um, you know, the story came out that there was a chemical attack. Everybody was blaming Assad, even though about a year ago to the day, the same story was trotted out about how Assad was gassing children and civilians. Came out after that it wasn't him because there's no reason for Assad to use chemical weapons in a war that he's already winning. That's still the case. There is no reason, again, for Assad to be using chemical weapons when he's winning a war with conventional weapons. The only thing that that would do would bring in the West and other imperialist powers. So it'd be incredible incredibly dumb for Assad to do that, for lack of a better term. So we talked about that, and we really discussed how a source like The Intercept conveniently came out with these stories about how Assad is a torture, right along the same timeline when the U.S. was deciding whether to go into Syria and intervene. So it seemed really convenient, really bizarre. So it was like, maybe, okay, maybe The Intercept had been working on these stories. They do do some international work. Let's even try to give them the benefit of the doubt, which is kind of laughable, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, you know, maybe they were planning on running these stories. They just happen to release them during the same time period. Who's to say, right? But shortly thereafter, The Intercept lost that benefit of the doubt in their absolutely, again, childish response to honest criticism of these stories from the anti-war left. You even had Jeremy Scahill, like, not as a joke, tweeting out that did people think Assad was cool when he was torturing people? Like, yes, Jeremy. We just think Assad is rad. That's why we're anti-interventionists. That's why we don't think the U.S. should go in there and fucking stir up another war. Because we just think Assad is cool. That's our guy. So that's that's the basis of our argument. Like, get the fuck out of here. This from a supposed investigative journalist. What fucking garbage. And when he was called out on it, specifically by, excuse me for butchering her name, Rania Kalik, who's wonderful. You should follow her on Twitter. She called him out on this bullshit. And he resorted to saying, you know, for somebody who wants to organize and is so left, you should get off Twitter. You're spending too much time on Twitter. That was his response. And let's let's remember the fact that Jeremy Scahill is maybe on Twitter more than anybody on fucking earth, even going out of his way to respond to people who mention him or The Intercept, who have like five followers, make one comment that gets one like. One of the responses that's on that thing is from Jeremy Scahill trying to defend himself. So this is a dude who clearly has a very fragile ego and cannot take honest criticism, cannot deal with honest criticism. And it was proven in the way that he acted like a fucking child this entire week. So I think he's lost all credibility. So I just think it's, again, you know, The Intercept had a chance to step down to be like, hey, you know, maybe we made a mistake, but apparently the likes of Scahill, Greenwald, and even Mehdi Hassan, apparently they don't make mistakes, clearly. And I fully realize I'm ranting here. It's something that I just can't avoid sometimes, especially with a topic as absurd as this. But even after all this happened, you had The Intercept release this story from Mehdi Hassan, and the the headline of the story was, Sorry, Assad apologist, your hero is still a war criminal, even if he didn't gas people. Like, yes, Mehdi, yes, he's our hero. 
That's why we don't want the U.S. to intervene in the Middle East. It has nothing to do with the U.S.'s track record of decimating that that part of the world for centuries. That has nothing to do with it. We're just super into Assad. Like, get the fuck out of here. It's the most disingenuous bullshit I've heard from a supposed leftist source in my life. So I think the entire crew at The Intercept has lost all credibility over this topic. So, I mean, it's nothing new. What do we expect from Western media, especially Western media that is funded by billionaires? Now, at this point, I wanted to talk a little bit about democracy now and them kind of towing the same line as The Intercept when it comes to this issue in Syria. But I'm just I'm frankly, I'm tired of talking about sources that can't do the 30 seconds of work it takes to uh, to look at the background of their guests and maybe see where they're coming from, because democracy now has been just as guilty of having guests on that are basically supporting intervention, even having somebody on that fought alongside these quote unquote rebels. It's. It's no secret that these rebels are funded by the U.S. It is no secret. It took me like fucking 30, 45 seconds to figure that out. You, you know, there's stories everywhere about it. But somehow Democracy Now! was incapable of doing that work. So they have a guest on that's supporting intervention. So I'm done. I'm done with The Intercept. I'm done talking about Democracy Now! at this point. Again, the Western media has always been a fucking joke. These two sources were better than most, but apparently that those days are over. So we'll see where it goes. I'm just, again, I'm tired of talking about it for now. So let's step away from this whole situation in Syria for a bit. Let's move on to the next story for headlines. Like I said, I'm going to have a guest on the show talking about Barbara Bush, kind of bougie white feminism, etc. I haven't listened to what she recorded, so we'll see. <laughs> I think it's going to be really good, though. So here is Lauren with her Laurent. All right, I'm just going to dive right into this. So as I'm sure you're all aware, former First Lady Barbara Bush passed away this week. I mean, how could you miss it? The internet has just been littered with coverage of her memorial service and tributes from people all across the political spectrum. This is what is considered being nice. And by many accounts, Barbara Bush was a nice person. I'm putting that word in air quotes in case you can't tell. She reportedly held more liberal views on issues like abortion and gay marriage than many of her Republican contemporaries, and she was devoted to promoting literacy here in the U.S. But this outpouring of support, especially from feminists, for a woman who was at best only somewhat better than most of the unrepentant sociopaths who make up the GOP, this really hits a nerve with me. This is something I see all too frequently within the popular feminist movement. And a quick clarification, when I use the phrase popular feminist movement, I'm speaking of the one most frequently referenced by the mainstream media. There are plenty of women and men out there fighting the good fight and practicing intersectional feminism, but unfortunately, they don't always get the same amount of coverage by the media. And also, unfortunately, too many feminists subscribe to this popular movement. It is moneyed, it is predominantly white, and it is hollow at its core. These are the people who revere women in positions of power, regardless of how they use that power. They point to female CEOs, female politicians, etc., as proof of how far we've come, as harbingers of progress. Hillary Clinton's campaign is a prime example of this. She won the popular vote by millions, not just because she was considered better than the alternative, but because millions of Americans genuinely believed in her. Her supporters spoke of her strength, her ability to hold her own in a man's world, her pantsuits, for Christ's sake, but completely ignored the more unsavory aspects of her political career, her votes on foreign affairs, any of her foreign policies, really, that disgusting remark she made in the 90s about super predators, those are just a couple of examples. She's not a good person, she's not a good leader, she is not a champion for the underdog. 
And this is a narrative I see so, so often within this feminist movement, that if a woman is able to get ahead in this sexist, racist, homophobic, classist nation, that is somehow a win for women everywhere. Full stop. And let me be clear, the idea that under our capitalist regime, individual success is somehow beneficial to the more marginalized members of society is absolutely false. It is a convenient lie, it is an excuse for selfishness, it's objectivism for people with guilt complexes, it's utter bullshit. And any movement, no matter how well-intentioned, becomes oppressive when it ties itself to an economy that depends on a vast impoverished labor force. Feminists ostensibly aim to secure equal rights for women, but we are doomed to fail as long as we continue to operate in the system as it exists now, the system that is predicated on inequality. True equality for women cannot be separated from economic equality for everyone. Because it just isn't, it isn't progress if the boot on your neck belongs to a woman. It's just more of the same. Um, so to wrap this up, I could go on and on about the atrocities committed by the Bush administrations, of the many moral failings that Barbara Bush turned an eye, a blind eye to, to the bigoted remarks that she herself made. But it boils down to this. She was complicit. As a very vocal and politically active first lady with an influence that stretched beyond her husband's term and into her son's, she had a platform to help people to affect real change. And she didn't. No one deserves to be lauded for that. So rest in piss, Barbara Bush. All right, that will wrap it up for headlines. I do hope that you like the fact that I had a guest on this week. I think it's important for a leftist show to have more than one voice for a myriad of reasons so it's something i want to do more of in the future so again hopefully you enjoyed that that said let's go ahead and move into the main segment this week i hope your ak's are still at the ready because we're going to be doing part two of our talk about the russian revolution discussing a topic like the Russian Revolution, which is so extensive, there's so much information, it's such a broad topic, I think it's important to form lines of continuity where we can. So I want to do a little bit of a recap from last week. We'll talk about some new stuff, specifically focusing in on Lenin this week. Next week, we'll do a recap of this week, etc. Now, I think that just with the format of the show, like I, I can't really do a five hour <laughs> episode like I talked about at the top of the show with like like Dan Carlin does with hardcore history. It just doesn't lend itself to this format. So we're gonna try to tie this all together as best we can. And again, this is gonna be something it does take several weeks. So hopefully it's something you enjoy. But um speaking of a recap, now last week we talked about early Russia. We talked about Russia in the 1860s. We talked about Russia under the Tsar and how the mode of production at that time was really feudalism. You know, serfdom was finally abolished in 1861, 
But for the people who were previously serfs, I mean, life didn't change a whole lot. Yes, you could no longer be sold, which is obviously beneficial for those people, but you were still toiling on the land. You were still working for the lords of the manor. Most of your money was going to that lord of the manor. So things didn't really change objectively a whole lot for the people living in Russia during that time. And it's not like you could just leave the village easily. You couldn't just go work at a factory or a mill because during that time in Russia, capitalism was lagging behind. There was not a lot of factories or mills so job options were scarce you were doing what you had to do to survive more or less now as we move through the 1860s really into the late 1860s the 70s and early 80s capitalism did start to uh, start to chug along a little bit it did start to pick up steam so you did have things like more factories more mills like the railroads opening which did open more job options for people who are previously just agricultural workers but that didn't necessarily mean that your life improved, you know, you were still exploited, heavily exploited in these workplaces. You know, even if you did find a job at a factory, yes, you were able to leave the village, but you were still working like 14 to 16 hour days, sometimes longer than that. You were exploited. You know, the person you worked for didn't give a shit about you. And if you had something to say about it, if you decided to try to organize, to go out on strike, you were either A, crushed by the person that was employing you, or B, uh, crushed by the really repressive police state of that time under the czar. On a positive note, however, something that did again form the kernel of what would become the Russian Revolution was the fact that you had more people working together. So there is a natural form of organization when you're working together in a factory, a mill, working on the railroad. Just, you know, you're all part of this this same kind of exploitation. So there's going to be some natural organization there. So we did start to see attempts, like rudimentary attempts at strikes, at organizing, you know, that, that revolutionary consciousness was starting to grow amongst the workers of Russia at that time. So even though, you know, capitalism was chugging along, like the rich people in the country or even people who owned factories outside of Russia were benefiting mostly from this. It was the birth of the proletariat, which was a very important step in what would again become the Russian Revolution. Now, with the growth of these industrial jobs, again, we see the growth of the proletariat. And with the growth of the proletariat, we start to see the rise in revolutionary consciousness. And that's where we get to the, like we talked about last week, the two schools of thought that were really dominant during that time period. We had the Narodniks or the anarchists or the populists on one side, and we had Plekhanov and his Emancipation of Labor Group, who introduced scientific socialism, translated the works of Marx and Engels in Russia during about 1883 on the other side. Now, the Narodniks or the anarchists or the populists were very much idealists. They believed that the peasantry was going to lead the revolution. They thought that going to the peasants and having them lead the, lead the way was the best course of action. And they didn't really believe that the proletariat were important because they thought capitalism was kind of a passing fad in Russia at the time, which obviously if we look back at history, that was not the case. They didn't really believe that capitalism was developing. And again, they, they found no reason to go to the proletariat as a revolutionary class. Now, on the other hand, we had Plekhanov and his Emancipation of Labor Group, who again were responsible for bringing the works of Marx and Engels, translating them into Russian, and they were really responsible for bringing scientific socialism to Russia through the works of Marx and Engels. They were arguing that, well, hey, Marx is saying that because of that natural organization, you know, capitalism creates its own gravediggers, and those gravediggers are the proletariat, so we need to depend on them to lead the revolution, not the peasants, because this is a much more revolutionary class at the end of the day. And the proof really came to light. You know, you had the Narodniks going to the peasants, 
trying to organize them, trying to turn them into a revolutionary class, but it just didn't work out. I mean, one, these were kind of a disorganized group of people, and two, we saw a splintering of the peasants. We saw the ones who were still serfs, essentially. We saw the rise of the kulaks who were exploiting all that serfdom. So this was not a cohesive group that you could really put up as a vanguard to lead the revolution. That work fell to the proletariat. And when the Narod and Ixtra anarchists were unsuccessful in these attempts, they decided to scrap that idea and just go through with these one-off assassination attempts, which they were successful in some of them. Like they did assassinate a Tsar, um, Tsar Alexander II, but as we know from history, he was replaced by Tsar Alexander III and things just got worse. So again, the revolutionizing the peasantry was just not the right course to take. And going through with these one-off assassinations obviously was the incorrect line to take as well. So we saw Plekhanov and that Emancipation of Labor group essentially win that line struggle. Not completely, but for the most part, they won that line struggle with the anarchists and the Dorodniks about the fact that we do need to look to the proletariat to lead us out of this fucking mess. But, as we talked about last episode, this was not a group that was infallible. They thought that they could completely leave out the peasantry, that the proletariat, along with some help from the liberal bourgeoisie, was going to be enough to challenge the Tsarist autocracy. We know that that wasn't quite the case. So including the peasantry, even if they weren't going to be the, the class that led the revolution, it was still important to have them on board. You needed them. You needed those numbers to really challenge the Tsar. And that certainly wasn't the only issue facing Plekhanov and this emancipation of labor group. While we did see the rise of workers' unions and workers' organization throughout the country, and we certainly did see the rise of Marxist groups, mostly due to the dissemination of works from Marx and Engels from Plekhanov and that emancipation of labor group, there was no cohesion between the two. There was no unity between these Marxist groups and the workers' organizations. And without that type of unity, they were never going to be powerful enough to challenge the czar or this repressive state. And that really leaves us at the point that we left off last week. We did see the rise of unions throughout Russia. We did see the rise of a lot of Marxist groups due to Plekhanov. But again, without a coalition of the two, without these two groups coming together, they just weren't going to be powerful enough individually to really challenge the czar or that czarist autocracy, you know, much less the, the repressive police state. So we needed somebody to step in and fill that gap, to fill this leadership role that would bring these two groups together. And that person, as we talked about last week, was Vladimir Lenin. Now, as I said at the top of the show, it is Lenin's birthday. I mean, this is not something I planned out. I'm not that clever, I promise you. But um, it's kind of cool that we're going to be talking about Lenin specifically on his birthday. So we'll talk a little bit about his history, a little bit of his family history, how he became radicalized. But we'll really start to focus in on, on why he was so important to the Russian Revolution. So getting into Lenin's history, we're going to talk just briefly about his family history. It's not something I want to go super in-depth on, but I do want to give you an idea of how he was potentially radicalized. So Lenin was born in 1870, obviously on this day of April 22nd, so we're celebrating his birthday. And he was born to, for the time period at least, a pretty normal family. Intelligent mother and father, his father was pretty religious, and by all accounts was kind of a conservative guy. I mean, his father attended the funeral of Tsar Alexander II after he was assassinated, so I think we can safely say that Lenin's future leftist ideology did not really come from his father by any means. 
Now, Lenin's older brother, Alexander, better known as Sasha during that time in, in Russia, was really a main source, I think, for Lenin's radicalization. Now, Sasha was very sympathetic to the Narodnik or anarchist line that assassination attempts and picking off these leaders was really the route to revolution. And it's, you know, it's no slight against him because looking back at that time period, if you were a leftist or a revolutionary, that was kind of the prevalent school of thought. So this is something that Sasha completely bought into. And in fact, kind of led to his demise, unfortunately. You know, he was involved in a plot to assassinate Alexander III, eventually was found out by the police, was arrested, gave a very passionate and eloquent speech during his trial, but um, but was eventually hanged in 1889 for that plot to assassinate the Tsar. And, you know, I it's, um, it's interesting because Vladimir, even throughout his over 50,000 pages of writing, he wrote so much, was such a prolific writer, never really mentioned Alexander, never really mentioned Sasha, and I think there's a reason for it. It wasn't that he wasn't acknowledging it, I think it was just... Um, really something that he didn't want to touch because it was such a formative and, and devastating moment for him. I can't speak for Vladimir, but it certainly seems like that was the fact. And just a quick correction, I think I said that um, his older brother was hanged in 1889. It was actually 1887, which is an important correction to make because I think, again, that's where we start to we started to see where Lenin was becoming radicalized. Because by all accounts, when he was a kid, even a teenager, wasn't especially a political kid. I mean, he's very intelligent by all accounts, was kind of a, a quick to anger, which is, is not surprising, and um, always kind of had a, a disdain for flowery prose. It was one that would get right to the point and didn't really dance around the subject. So for any of you that have read Lennon's works, I think you can see that. Like, he is right to the point and doesn't, doesn't waste a word, which is one of the more important parts of his writing, to be quite honest with you. But um, yeah, his brother was hanged in 1887, and during that same year, Lenin was actually expelled from Kazan University for revolutionary activity. So I think we saw an instant an instant uptick in, in his political activity due to the fact that his brother was hanged for being a revolutionary. And shortly after that expulsion from university in 1887, Lenin set up some Marxist groups in that area, kind of got his feet wet in organizing, and eventually moved to St. Petersburg, Russia in 1893, and that sort of thing has really started to ramp up. Now, even as a young man, you have many, many accounts of people saying just like, what a powerful speaker he was, what a natural leader he was, what a great organizer he was, and he just had this real natural gift for applying the teachings of Marx and Marxism, applying those to the modern day, then the modern day conditions of Russia, the economic situation, the workers' struggles, etc. He just had a gift for, the, for uniting the two, and that would really be so vital moving forward. In fact, just two years later, in 1895, you had Lenin, still very much a leader amongst the Marxist groups there, realizing that there needed to be a coalition. There needed to be some cohesion between these groups, not only these groups, but these Marxist groups and, and the unionized workers throughout Russia. So you had Lenin, again in 1895, from the League of Struggle for the Emancipation of the Working Class. And the aim of this group, again, was not only to bring together Marxist groups, but to bring Marxist groups together with these unionized workers to form a real coalition that would be powerful enough to challenge the Tsar. And from about 1895 all the way through the early 1890s, we saw Lenin doing just that. Every time there was a big strike throughout Russia, either Lenin or members of that party were there, passing out leaflets, trying to propagandize. And the aim 
the aim of their message was not to just reach the leaders of the workers, these, these organizers. It was mass agitation amongst all the workers. They knew that they had to reach everybody if they were going to have a real revolution, which in retrospect was obviously the correct route to take. So instead of just propagandizing again amongst other Marxists or leaders of the movement, they knew that moving to mass agitation was really the correct step to take if they hoped to make any real gains moving forward. Now, not only did you have Lenin and that group taking on that really arduous task of mass agitation amongst the workers, during this time period, during the 1890s, you also had them combating the remaining Narodniks. And the Narodniks at this time, or the anarchists, were basically, they had given up. They had given up any type of revolutionary activity. They thought that just making a truce with the Tsarist autocracy, the Tsarist government, was the route to go. And you had Lenin and that group also battling what were called legal Marxists. And these legal Marxists were the first economists of their time. We can compare them today to like union members who only want to improve working conditions for workers and don't really want to change anything. That was the outlook of these legal Marxists at the time, too. They're like, all right, you know, let's just try to make life easier for the workers. We'll do what we can for them. We'll leave the politics to the liberal bourgeoisie. Somehow they'll figure it out. We'll just try to make these subtle improvements, not realizing that, of course, without overthrowing the system, things would never actually get better for the workers. They were blind to that fact, just as a lot of union members are today. But, um, you know, you had Lenin battling down those Narodniks. He won that line struggle against the Narodniks officially with his, his book, What Are the Friends of the People? Just absolutely killed the Narodniks in that book and buried them for good. But this uh, this battle with the, the economists, these legal Marxists, would go on for some time. So just looking at time, we'll go ahead and leave it there for this episode. Now, we have just barely scratched the surface as it concerns the Russian Revolution. We will continue that discussion next week and probably the next several weeks. There's a lot more that needs to be said about Lenin. We'll talk about the actual revolution itself, etc. So if you have any questions for me, concerns, comments, you can find me on Twitter at ManifestPod. I have the Facebook page up, Manifesting Podcast. Just search that out. I'm on Instagram occasionally. And if you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash manifestpod. So until next episode, Red Salute.